So when you're talking about mobility in the, the T-spine, we're already cinched down through our shoulder straps with this, you know, 30 pound air pack already impacting the mobility of our T-spine, let alone whatever mobility limitations that any of us might, may have as uh, an individual. This is the RIT Team Radio Podcast, dedicated toward the wellness initiative of the fire and rescue community. Stay with us as we explore and share evidence-based research, information, and training methods. Here's your host, Hussein Jabai. Welcome back to RIT Team Radio. I'm joined again with Brian Provencher of Firefighter Peak Performance. We're at part two of flexibility and mobility, looking at the sciencey side, more of exercise science, physiology, looking at research. That way we can have an understanding of what's already out there. What does the literature say? So then when we drift over to part three, we can give you more actionable items. We can give you more takeaways of things to integrate into your training program. Um, so really quick, before we get into the science aspect, Ryan, can you kind of give us just a very, very brief rundown? What is flexibility and mobility? And just just a general, I know we don't have to go to the full uh, episode where we talk about the significance, but what does it mean to a firefighter? Yeah, so you know, in part one, we really dug into differentiating between mobility and flexibility. And, and of course, we know that we can go so much deeper than just the surface level definition, but mobility being more active range of motion in a joint or movement pattern and flexibility being a more passive or range of motion at end range for each joint. And then we talked about how does that apply to firefighters uh, in the in the physical line of work that we all are involved in. And when we talk about flexibility, we talk about mobility, mobility being requiring or asking our body, demanding our body to go through this range of motion. Um, and, and, and with that being said, I want to give this is kind of a let's add a, a mini a mini lesson before we get into the researchy side and, and kind of highlighting and touching on the mobility aspect is our body is comprised of different joints that have different actions. And if you remember anything, Function follows form. I, I learned this when I was in my undergrad and, and master's program and my professor, my biomechanics professor kept hitting the nail on the head of function following form. So depending on the type of joints it is the kind of action that that joints can do. And so I wanted to introduce that because certain joints are meant to be stable. Some are meant to be more mobile and have a greater range of motion. And when you're asking something that needs to stay stable, to be mobile, it can impact other joints and vice versa. If something is uh, um, uh, mobile and it starts stiffening, it's going to start impacting the uh, more stable joints. It's going to start mobilizing them. So that's one principle that's going to be pretty heavy throughout this concept so that when we start talking about injury rates, we start talking about mobility of the hips or uh, potential risk factors for the shoulders. Uh, we can kind of utilize this idea throughout. And then uh, toward the end of this podcast, we'll talk about different mobility drills, different things you can do to assess in a daily fashion. So you can give yourself an indicator, where am I at from a mobility sense? Um, and then as well as drifting more into part three, we can start being prescri uh, prescriptive. We can start giving you resources, tools, 
action items, things you can implement day to day throughout your program that can assist you with mobility. Um, so uh, before going into the exercise science side, um, let's just touch base on some statistics that are out there. And the first one, the heaviest hitting one, and this can be a, a poster stat, this can be, it's very bold in nature, is every eight minutes, a firefighter gets injured every eight minutes. So what does that mean from a uh, from an, a significant sense? If someone is being injured, and, and we can always look back to the types of injuries, um, high on the list is going to be overexertion and strain, types being more fall slips and trips. But just knowing that stat, what does that mean to you, Ryan? One, as the firefighter, but also as more of the injury mitigation and an instructor and a coach that works with firefighters, what does that stat mean to you? Yeah, well, it's it's significant, obviously. And when I hear a stat like that, and, and you and I make our sports analogies, right? It's like if if you can, if you're not on the field, you can't score a touchdown or you can't help your team. So same thing in our firefighting world. If someone is off injured, uh, they're not doing the job they love. They're not able to contribute to supporting their community. They're on the bench, so to speak, because of this injury. And then you know when you look at that uh, every eight minutes you know, take a look at the annual injury statistics for firefighters consistently over 60,000 injuries per year. And the cost associated with that is enormous. And so when we look to justify wellness programs uh, in our fire departments, those statistics are very compelling to help justify the funding for wellness programs that can actually objectively reduce these uh, this injury pattern. One, you meant you mentioned um, the the cost, right? The medical costs, the workers' comp claims, and and so forth. And from a particular study, and looking back at uh, claims that evolved over the years, uh, research from Phelps uh, that was established in 2018, depending on the claim, could cost uh, anywhere from five thousand to thirty five thousand, and that's per claim. That's not saying you could have one claim, and we know. Uh, once you get injured, right, there's there's kind of uh, is kind of a twofold process, right? Once you get injured, you kind of decrease your physical activity, um, you might reduce your overall approach to fitness, and then therefore you just jump back in the field. And that concept in itself already sets you up for potential increase or reoccurrence of injury. But then just the kind of uh, depending on the nature, you might have structural damage, you might have um, kind of those complications where when you, again, jump back out there, you're already set up from a structure sense, whether it's weakened limbs, uh, integrity of joints and so forth, there's potential for more injury. So that, that five to 35,000, and we're just giving kind of an overview of the cost of, of claims, that's per, an in, per one, not for one individual, but per a claim. So if you have two or three, or, you know, you might know someone that has way more during yeah. their career. Um, that that can be uh, very expensive in a sense, which again, we, our approach isn't um, just the the financial aspect. That's one principle. How can we help um, from a injury mitigation for the agency? How do we have a better ROI with an injury mitigation and injury prevention program? Um, but then also, you want to add into that. What about the cost of trying to bring someone else over to cover that ship, which turns into OT for that person or training more, right? And you probably, you know, recall um, and reflect on your experiences. What happens when someone gets injured, right? The agency 
pays for it. Let's say it goes through workers comp. And that's always a, a, a fun just from conversations with that's that's usually a, a fun, fun experience, right? Uh, and a process. But what does that look like when you when you have guys injured, and then you have to replace or cover those shifts? And then depending on manpower, you might have to train more personnel to get into that roles. What does that look like from your side? Yeah. And so just circling back, you know, one injury. And as we go, I think we can make an argument that a lot of these injuries are preventable with just being more mindful or being more intentional about certain things or having access to education around uh, fitness and, and movement and things like that. But as we mentioned, the, the injury is certainly impactful on the individual, and then it becomes impactful on the community just based on uh, the individual's ability to serve the community. And then as you're mentioning, uh, not only is there cost associated with uh, the LNI claim, as you've said, but then there is an overtime cost typically time and a half, maybe even double time, depending on the department and policy procedure, et cetera, those costs just add up. And so that's where I really, you know, it, on the downside, you know, you hate to see those statistics, but it really creates a compelling argument for one to get firefighters to really buy in on how important it is to pay attention to strategies that may help them to prevent injuries. And then also getting buy-in from agencies uh, and entities to fund these wellness programs and injury prevention programs. One the the overarching one of uh, or one of the many questions that agencies might have is okay, I'm thinking about incorporating some sort of program. I'm thinking about putting a policy in place where you have an hour, hour and a half to train, 45 minutes to train, whatever that might look like. I'm thinking about integrating that, but what about potentially getting injured on shift while training. That's a that's another huge, uh, huge concept. And it's the trade-off, right? And statistically, um, we have less. We have about uh, half as much injuries happening um, during actual occupational tasks for those that have a higher level of fitness. But there's also that trade-off of you're also risking those that might not be as informed on how to train being injured while training, while doing resistance training. That's probably even with dialogue with agencies, that's been, hey, I have two guys out. They were bench pressing. They were doing something. They and I always ask, well, what what were they doing? Was this at a call? Nope. It was in it was in the gym. So uh what does that mean from an instructional side? What does that mean from an education piece? Well, and that draws attention to several of the studies that you and I were looking at. Uh, one was that firefighters with lower fitness levels were more prone to injury. The incidence of injury was higher for those with a lower fitness level. And then the agencies that had actual wellness and fitness programs saw a lower rate of injury. So those are both compelling and positive uh, justification for these fitness and wellness programs. Uh, but one of the things you and I talk about so often is, okay, well, are we okay with a more arbitrary approach to fitness? Or are we looking at an intentional approach to firefighter physical training? And so that's that last little piece where if you're gonna implement a fitness and wellness program, there really should be an, an NFPA 1583 really calls out, you know, a health fitness coordinator, a peer fitness trainer. And there's, there's lots of programs and yours included to qualify people to serve as coaches so that 
firefighters are training with intention. They're not overtraining. They're not participating in activities that they're overextending themselves or trying to keep up with someone else. There's ways to create structure in your program to really, I would say, eliminate, eliminate's a strong word, but very much reduce the risk for injury when you have an intentional and intelligent physical training program. Well, I'm glad you said that, right? Like trying to approach it from, and and everyone wants to say this is strictly and, and highly an injury prevention program or a hundred percent injury prevention program. Injuries will happen. It's more of mitigation. It's more of let's decrease the likelihood of it happening or not if, but when something does happen, let's decrease the severity of it. And so that way, you know, a, a, a shorter return to duty time, decrease in the severity of the injury leading to potentially not as uh, likely to have a reoccurring injury and, and so forth. So it's just kind of this ongoing process of just longevity of health for personnel. Um, so thought process is to transition to uh, chat a little bit more about how the body works in a sense of uh, stretching, mobility, range of motion. Um, so the fir uh, first key item I, I wanted to chat with you about was more of rotation. That's kind of a heavy hitting topic, being able to uh, rotate with your thoracic uh, spine, which is integrated into a lot of things that that firefighters do and, and just general health. And so just to specify um, structure, we have um, to, yeah, from a sciency, we have, you know, cervical, thoracic and lumbar spine working from the top, you know, down, but from a simplicity nature, we have our upper spine, our upper back, and we have our lower spine, more of our lower back, more of our base of support. And we want the top half, we want that thoracic spine really mobile. And we want that lumbar spine to be, to be stable and to be a, provide a frame of, of a foundation. Um, and, and from a, from an injury risk factor sense, the more that thoracic spine starts to stabilize, the less mobile it becomes. And, and the more it starts to stiffen, it's going to start pushing that to other seg uh, segments. It's going to start pushing its way down, um, to the lumbar spine. It's going to start pushing its way down to other joints. And that's where I talked about, and I want to mention that joint by joint model is when something that's meant to be mobile starts to stiffen, it starts working its way to other segments and, and that demand is placed on something else, right? If it, can't, uh, if it can't keep up with the demand, say you're rotating and the thoracic or the upper spine can't keep up with that, it's gonna say, hey, lumbar, hey, lower back, I can't keep rotating. How about you finish the rotation for me? And so therefore we are transitioning, we're transferring that demand to another joint. And it just, it, it, it works its way around. So what kind of, from a, a job task sense, what kind of tasks can you think of that require some sort of, of rotation? Well, yeah. And remember too, it's really important to, to kind of draw attention to the fact that when firefighters are working, oftentimes, uh, certainly on a fire scene, we're wearing uh, full turnouts and an SCBA. So when you're talking about mobility in the T-spine, the we're already cinched down through our shoulder straps with this, you know, 30 pound air pack already impacting the mobility of our T-spine, let alone whatever mobility limitations that any of us might, may have as uh, an individual. So if you're, let's say you're using a baseball bat technique to force a door, for example, and you're really going through an explosive rotation at the spine, 
and you talk about being mobile through your T-spine, stable through your lumbar spine, and then we want mobility through the hips, right, to, to help um, optimize the force that we uh, use in that baseball bat technique. So any, any breakdown in the biomechanics of that really can add to the, the compensation or the loading of that low back and setting us up for injury. Well, you mentioned transfer of power when, when we're trying to be more forceful, we're trying to be more powerful, whether it's striking, it's deploying, we're doing something that's very powerful in nature. About uh, A study found about 50% of the kinematics and, and that production of force is transferred and about 50% is transferred from the lower body to the upper body through that, that generation throughout the spine. And so if we're having that much transfer and we're relying, we're going, okay, lower body, hips, you know, start that force production. Let's transfer it through the spine and then out the upper extremities or up the, the uh, upper torso. We're, we're asking a lot of our spine. We're asking a lot of the, this segment of the body. And then we ask ourselves, well, how are we keeping that segment healthy? If it's transferring all this power, if it's the foundation and the platform for rotational force production, how are, how are we taking care of this segment? How are we maintaining spinal health? And that's, that's a huge piece is looking at your thoracic or your upper back, looking at your lower spine, your lower back and going, okay, one needs to be more mobile. One needs to be more stable. How can I approach taking care of these segments? And so that's where we'll, we'll dive in more. You know, we add in you know, plug after plug about uh, episode three and actual items, but just knowing that you need to incorporate mobility, knowing that you need to incorporate different drills, different tasks, different activities to reduce the risk of injury um, for those segments. Um, let's transition to shoulders. Let's transition to one or two other segments. Then we'll get into more uh, mobility drills and just talking about the ideology and the approach to incorporating daily tasks. Uh, but looking at shoulders, I mean, just straightforward, do you incorporate overhead movements into job tasks within firefighting? What does what what kind of shoulder movements do you uh, do you do as a firefighter? Well, there's so many and it's something as simple as just reaching back for your seatbelt or throwing your air pack. Certainly overhaul where you're uh, using a pike pole with force to breach a ceiling and pull a ceiling. So we do all kinds of overhead activities, either in subtle ways or uh, very overt ways. And uh, again, maybe we're wearing an air pack, maybe we're not, but if when we're in overhaul, for example, we certainly are wearing an air pack. So you've got those straps that are already restricting your movement. And now you're using explosive force overhead. If you don't have a sense of that stability in the shoulder joint uh, on the posterior side and the, the mobility uh, in terms of range of motion to go overhead, you're already kind of setting yourself up to, to get hurt there. Well, and it's, you know, a lot of the research that we look that's out there. And, and anytime when we say research, you're looking at articles, you're looking at publications. In many cases, it's not this is what we're looking at. Uh, it's specifically shoulder. Let's say you're going through some kind of rotation, flexion, extension, whatever, some kind of movement. Many cases, it's not this movement associated to firefighting, right? A lot of the studies aren't 
the population isn't firefighting. What you do when you look at research is go, okay, this is what it looks like in a clinical, very controlled setting. And then how do we associate this to the profession? And then how do we use what we know to apply tests or assessments or activities, drills, tasks? How do we start incorporating that? And the reason I say that is, and this is just more food for thought is, there was a study that was out there looking at risk of injury for swimmers. And one thing they were they were able to establish with shoulder external rotations. But so think of rotating your arm outwards or your thumb away from your body is that if they had lower than 93 degrees or higher than 100 degrees, they knew their swimmers were going to have potentially have a higher uh, risk of shoulder injury. And so what that tells us is they uh, looked at the sport, they looked at the tasks, they looked at what the shoulder needed to do for a swimmer to perform their tasks, and they were able to give some sort of range, some sort of indicator. So this is more a food for thought based on this ideology and this approach to the task, the limb, the joint, and then an indicator is what kind of tasks do you do on the fire ground? What kind of tasks do you do in the bay? And then how do you start looking at those movements? per joint and start establishing assessments and mobility drills and and different tasks for them to do um, within their day-to-day regimen. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's comes all the way back to what we talk about over and over again is this whole idea of awareness um, and being intentional about how you approach your physical training, how you approach your firefighting. And, uh, and the thing is, too, it changes day-to-day. You may wake up just being super stiff through your shoulder based on a workout that you did or some other physical activity. And that's where I I believe it's just so important to have a specific and comprehensive physical training program that every day, whether it's through a warm up or a cool down or a dedicated mobility or flexibility day to get a better sense of where your body is and what are you going to be capable of either in your workout or uh, as a firefighter on that particular day. One, based off of day-to-day and, and fluctuations and then going back and, and making sure you're doing your mobility, um, I kind of want your two cents on this study, just kind of how the, the results came out, which um, a lot of it is completely understandable. But one part I kind of want your two cents is, uh, so this study, uh, it was looking at the effects of dynamic stretching with different loads on hip joint range of motion in the elderly, but it was comparing uh, static stretching to dynamic stretching. And we already have an idea. Okay, let's, let's, I, I prefer more dynamic stretching, but there's a purpose for, for both, depending on uh, your goals and initiative behind it. Um, but the dynamic stretching had variation. It could have been under load. It could have been free without any kind of load. And they found that dynamic stretching with zero load, just passive stretching in itself was the most effective way in comparison to load and actually utilizing uh, the limb, utilizing some sort of resistance. Um, Dynamic stretching without load actually assisted the most and was the most effective, but the effect only lasted or, or it sustained for about 60 minutes or more. So what, how does that kind of, what, what is your thought process in, at, in different types of stretches? And then why do you think without load, how they were able to really focus on just that individual um, joint and that individual muscle group versus something that's under load? 
So a couple of things come to mind for me. And, you know, when we're looking at our programming for an individual, I really, in a whole first phase, whether you want to call it general physical preparedness or how you want to look at it, I really prefer to do a lot of body weight only initially, just to really get a sense of someone's movement quality in all of these movement patterns we talked about, uh, push overhead, we talk about rotation. You know, I don't want to load that for an athlete until I get a really great sense of their capabilities to begin with. And if they can't demonstrate quality movement without load, I certainly don't want to load that. So that's the first thing. And then talking about being intentional about where we utilize loaded versus unloaded. So again, when we talk about a warm up for a training session, to me, that's where we're implementing this, these dynamic movements. We're trying to get blood flow. We're trying to you know, uh, warm up, activate uh, muscles and open up joints for the training. So it's not so much in that warm up period that you're seeking that long-term adaptation that does come with either load related to body weight or uh, external load in these movement patterns. So that, that's my take on it is you know, how, what's your goal? If your goal is to warm up for a training session, that ties right into what you're saying about uh, body weight movement. And then taking a step back, if we're talking about now a training adaptation, let's see what the athlete's capable of in, in terms of movement quality with only body weight. And then we can start adding load and getting into, uh, you know, specific adaptation to imposed demands and some of that other, you know, exercise science stuff that we, that we look at for progress in our athletes. Well, and to continue the dialogue about mobility drills and different things you can do to uh, just mobilize these different segments was another, and I always, you know, I'll say, I'll quote research, I'll give you um, the, the title, I'll post some links within uh, the podcast description, but at any point you have a, one, you have a question of, okay, that sounded interesting. I want to, I want to read more and I always encourage to read more, uh, for, for viewers when you listen or anytime you hear research, always dig a little bit more into it because you need to know how many participants were involved. What was the methodology and what instruments did they use to measure and all these great things. So definitely try and dig a little deeper in these concepts. So feel free to reach out. We can send that to you. Um, but one of these, uh, which was looking at uh, this one was gender specific, um, but uh, let me give you the title real quick. Gender difference in effects of proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation, which is a big phrase right there, uh, stretching on flexibility and stiffness of hamstring muscle. Now, what I liked about this research is it showed that when they were able to stretch the hamstring, it actually decreased the stiffness and kind of helped with the flexibility of the calf muscles. So to me, that kind of gives me this, this uh, opposite approach from a assessment piece, right? So if we mobilize or if we uh, increase the flexibility of hamstrings and it can help out with the calves, doesn't that work in the opposite manner where if your calves are tight, it impacts your hamstrings, which impacts your posterior chain, which then can impact your hinging movements, right? So it was kind of, it's kind of interesting to know how these segments work together. So from a just general sense, what does that mean from a mobility drill or, or mobility tasks look like for you, Ryan? Well, and I think it comes back to what we've talked about, uh, movement patterns versus body parts. 
And I think we can really differentiate or apply certain strategies when we're talking about mobility and flexibility. I do think uh, uh, functional range conditioning, for example, where you're you're doing targeted joint strengthening, and then that does help with global mobility. If you're strengthening your hip joints in a way that you can't do with traditional training, this targeted uh, joint strengthening leads to improved mobility. Uh, you can do a joint by joint approach, I believe, but then again, it all has to be put back into the movement pattern at the end of the day. So um, that's, again, we talk over and over again, is, is your training comprehensive? Is your training specific? And these are the types of things that we're getting at is you can have a very efficient physical training program where you're addressing these things in a very uh, intentional way, covering all your bases. Well, and the, the last thing I want to add on here is more, again, expanding on that, the, the research article I had just mentioned from a gender-specific standpoint was the research found, yes, to a degree uh, from a musculature sense and a flexibility sense, uh, males were a little bit more stiff and didn't have as much flexibility as females. And then even when they went through a stretching intervention, they were still a little bit more stiff, granted they were already a little bit more stiff when they had started, but there was no difference in the rate of improvement for gender, meaning that male or female, when you're going through these mobility tasks, both will reap the benefit of going through the drills and the tasks, and both will benefit at the same rate, right? So it's it, everyone needs to, no matter who you are, age, gender, um, needs to participate in flexibility and mobility drills. Um, the, the key to this is understanding why, understanding the significance and why it impacts you as a first responder, as a firefighter. Um, and so hopefully being able to take away these concepts, being able to uh, understand the, the importance of mobilizing, of becoming uh, more flexible, but more mobile and having a higher quality of movement is it going to allow you, one, to have longevity of health, but have a very proactive and reactive approach to your career, and then to be able to not just make it to retirement, but to be able to enjoy your retirement. So uh, hopefully all of you that uh, are listening uh, enjoyed more of the sciencey side to flexibility and mobility. And then once we drift to part three, so be looking out for the next uh, episode within this series, we will be talking about action items. We'll be giving you a, a lot more takeaways, a lot more things you can integrate into your training program, more tangible tidbits you can incorporate into your day-to-day.